Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is sponsored this week by Terra Accounting and Consulting. Now, I'm an entrepreneur. In fact, I'm launching a new venture right now that you'll hear about um, pretty soon. And this requires me managing a lot of different things. So anytime I can outsource the stuff that's beyond my expertise, and that's a lot of stuff, um, that's a good decision. Terra Accounting and Consulting understands this. They are a CPA firm built for doers like me. They help business owners build financial strategies that pave the way toward increased profitability and personal financial growth. So call Terra Accounting to schedule a consultation today. And if you mention Hey Amarello, you'll get $100 off any service. Just tell them you heard it on the podcast. When it comes to accounting, payroll, bookkeeping, and tax prep, consider it done with Terra Accounting and Consulting. That's Terra, T-E-R-R-A. Today's guest is Melanie Eggleston. I first met Melanie several years ago at a concert. She was pretty new to the area at the time and was working as a massage therapist. Well, we've stayed in touch since then, and when I found out she had recently begun serving as a death doula, I had to interview her. Now, if you've never heard the term, a death doula is exactly what it sounds like. A birth doula helps bring a baby into the world, A death doula helps a person at the end of their life, helping that individual or their family navigate the entire complicated end-of-life process. And Melanie explains what all of that means. But beyond that, she just has a fascinating story anyway, because she's not originally from this area. So I think you'll really enjoy this episode. Here's Melanie Eggleston. Melanie Eggleston, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here today. Hi, it's nice to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you. Um, I know you've listened to the show before. You've actually recommended guests to me before. So uh, it's it's an honor to actually have you in the guest chair. And I want to start the way that I've started with all of my guests and just ask you why you're here. How did you end up here in this area in the first place? Well, I am originally from Chicago, and um, I fell in love with a Texan, and he couldn't keep me away any longer. So okay. I've lived here almost 15 years now. And was he living in Chicago when you guys met, or how did no, that happen? No, he grew up in Kwana, and then he went to WT and lived here after that. And so he was here, and I was there, and we met accidentally online, not on a dating site. Um, and... I guess he really liked me. So he finally came out to Chicago and we met and then went back and forth just about once a month until I just couldn't stand it anymore and packed up my kids and sold my house and moved here. Okay. So I'm, I'm interested in the, we accidentally met online, but not in a dating site. Was it like a a message board kind of thing? It was, it was, this is olden days. Yeah. So this is like pre social media internet, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It probably was social media, really, we just didn't know what that was Right, yet. yeah. Um, it was called iVillage, and they had all okay. different bulletin boards about everything from, you know, parenting to divorce to dating online, and that's what I was doing, and so I went on this board. Again, it wasn't to meet people, but it was right. to talk about how to put your best foot forward when dating online in order to meet somebody who was really good for you, and... Um, this is kind of a funny story. So it was actually my birthday weekend. It was mm-hmm. Labor Day weekend. And I had spent the whole day with my best friend in downtown with my with my kids. And I wanted to put up a profile for myself on a dating site. So I knew I had been really active on iVillage with parenting boards and a divorce board that I had been, been busy on before then, um, before this time. And um, I decided to log on to that board and they were having a chat. So I was like, oh, this is great timing. So yeah. I just like logged into the chat and it was all women except for one person's name was Eric 1203. And I thought, and it's so terrible to even say this, but I thought, oh gosh, you know, he's probably here trying to pick up women. Yeah. He's probably, <laughs> um, but he just seemed really sweet. And again, I was not looking to meet anybody even outside of my suburban neighborhood. So I definitely didn't want to meet anybody in Texas. So, um, but he asked us to go look at his profile because he just wasn't getting any traction. Mm -hmm. So I looked at it and I thought, 
he's cute and he looks like he's got a nice job and he just seems like a nice person. And um, some of our interests overlapped. And I just came back and said, it looks good to me. I don't It really, worked for you. I guess. I guess. It was I successful. Mean, had he been in my area, I don't, I probably, I would have got, if he was interested, I would have gone out with him. I typically was dating weirder people than mm-hmm. he is. He's, he's um, a very not weird person. The weirdest thing about him is me. So, but anyway, so I just came back and said, it looks fine. I don't really know why you're not getting any, any traction on this. And some of the other women piped in and then, um, he and I, there was, you would like kind of have a little private conversation going and we were kind of just talking, but I, I really didn't think anything of yeah. it. Maybe I'm really nice. That's, it's so funny to hear that story because that, like that message board world, you know, it feels like so much a part of the internet from 15 years ago. And yet, you know, my kids would have no idea about any of that stuff. Right. And it would just seem so archaic and prehistoric, you know, in, yeah. in internet world. So. And, oh, and it was, yeah, but it was. It big. was the thing. Yeah. yeah, it was totally the thing. So, so. The, the, the process of moving to Amarillo or Amarillo Canyon area from Chicago, that's a big change. Yeah. Um, tell me, tell me about that. Well, I think it helped that I had, when my son was born, I had moved to the suburbs. So I wasn't living in the city. So it was kind of like a baby step. Um, And I live out in the country now, which seemed really exciting to me at the time. You know, I really, I I loved the idea of it. So, um, so I mean, it was definitely some culture shock. It's very different here than living in Chicagoland. And I don't know. I mean, it just, I, I mean, I just sort of got here, felt real weird. Eric was the only person I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty good at meeting people, but it took me a while to find my people. And so, you know, here I am. It's like, I can't believe it's been 15 years. So I've lived here longer than I lived in my little suburban townhouse before I moved here. What were some of the things that, uh, when you think about that culture shock, some of the things that stood out the most, whether it was in a negative way or a positive way? Like, like what were the big things you had to get used to? Um, I think that um, there's less diversity here mm-hmm. than there is in a big city, obviously, um, and less interaction. You know, during COVID, one thing that um, really stood out to me was back home, everybody, because they're so close together and because they ride public transportation, and even if you go take a walk, you're going to be around, surrounded by people. Right. Where it's more of like a community feeling and community attitude, and I think less resistance to the restrictions. Where here we're so spread apart that I think that we're so used to like you get in your car, you drive to where you're going to go, and you know, so it's it's a different feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, I I finally got used to the accent. It took me. It took me a little bit. When I first moved into my house, the person who was installing my my washer and dryer asked me if I lock it out there, and I thought he was asking me if I locked my doors. Yeah. And I said, Yeah, I, I lock my doors. <laughs> and he said, No. Do you lock it? Do you lock it? And I finally clicked. Oh, you mean you? Do I like it? Yeah, I like it out here. I love that there's cows outside. <laughs> That's on my front door. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's vastly different. Did anybody comment about your accent? Like, all did, the time. Okay. Because it's not, it's not too pronounced, but like, if you listen closely, you can hear a few yeah. differences. Yeah. Chicagoans really, we love our vowels. We mm-hmm. really, really say them all the way, not like they do here. I, I wonder, you know, beyond the, the cultural elements, you know, uprooting and moving to a new place, a new marriage, um, and then kind of it, it's, it's a starting over uh, oh, in yeah. a lot of ways. I, I wonder, you know, what you can tell me about, you know, landing here and, and sort of figuring out, okay, who, who am I going to be now that I'm here in the Texas panhandle? Yeah. yeah. Uh, what was that process like for you? I had some really big changes because when I came here, I really didn't know what I was going to do for work, but I felt like um, I can do anything. And so I got here and I got a job at Southwest Retina, mm-hmm. and I started as the receptionist, and then they found out that I had a photography background. So they asked me if I wanted to learn how to run retinal angiograms, because that's photography Obviously, same thing. Sounds really crazy, but I thought, yeah, that's great. So I learned how to um, stick people and infuse them with dye and mm. take photographs of the back of their eyes. And I loved working with my patients and I loved my patients. And I always thought 
the test is really miserable. It's very uncomfortable. Some people get really sick from the dye. Um, but I thought, if I'm the worst part of their day, how can I make it better? Right. And so um, I really loved doing that. But I, within a few years, realized I didn't really love working for doctors. Okay. So um, that's when my husband said, maybe you should be a massage therapist. And my original, my first thought was, no, I can't do that because my ex-husband's wife is a massage therapist. Okay. So, yeah. But is that anything that you'd done in the past? I mean, was, was that any, anywhere aligned with your career? No, I think, um, no, I had, I had had lots of different jobs. Mm -hmm. I went to art school right out of high school and I didn't finish. I met my ex-husband. We both dropped out and got married very young, had kids very young and I stayed home with them. Um, Interestingly, my ex-husband and my husband now have the, are also have the same career. It's so weird. That is weird. It's so weird. So yeah, they're both software developers. But so yeah, so that was why I said I can't do that. That's mm -hmm. just too. I, so that's a weird line. I cannot. It's cross. like it's intentional. It starts it was to feel intentional. So weird. But anyway, um, so I had I had gone to massage therapists for many years when I was younger. I have actually a pretty bad back injury, and so. I see chiropractors and massage therapists regularly. Plus, I also, you know, I'm just kind of a touchy-feely, you know, huggy kind of person. And so I guess he just thought I would be really good at it. And then, you know, once I said no, I thought about it for a day and was like, no, no, I'm, I mean, I've let my ex-husband stop me with other things. This is, I'm not going to let him stop this. And I decided that was what I was going to do. So it does take a special person to do that because you do have to be you know, literally a, a touchy-feely person in that job. And I, I wonder if you can, you know, talk to me about, you know, sort of what you found that you really enjoyed with it. What what were some of the things that, that made that a fulfilling career? Oh, gosh, so much. Um, I sometimes say that I learned everything I need to know in life in massage school because everything just reflects back to that. I just, I love the relationships that I build with my clients. Um, they're really very special to me. I've gone, I mean, I've kept going in different directions because of that, um, because of my relationship with, with my clients and because how much I love what I do. I get a big sense of satisfaction helping people, making them feel good. And a lot of people don't realize that massage therapists also get those feel-good endorphins going when we're working. Really? Yeah. Yeah. They've done studies even on massage therapy students mm -hmm. who are, you're a little nervous when you're first learning how to do massage, but they tested their cortisol levels and they were much lower after giving a massage than okay. before. And I know that that's something like research has said that that happens when you hug somebody, you know, yes. and, and that you get those releases. I guess it's a similarity, you know, it's not a hug, but it's, it's an interpersonal touch that, that both of you are getting. Definitely. I mean, it's very nurturing and it's intimate. I mean, obviously not in a sexual way, but it is intimate to be with somebody. And um, there's a level of trust that you have to have between you and your client. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just been, it's been a really wonderful thing, of course, until COVID happened. Right. And so <laughs> I, I do want to talk about that. I, I know before that point, though, Part of the work that you did was uh, aligned with 24 Hours in the Canyon yes. with uh, their their cancer services, and and you were providing uh, your massage therapy for people who were going through treatment. Is that is that an accurate way to describe yeah. it? Yeah. So when I was in massage school, um, we learned what you should and should not do, and who you can and cannot work on. And one thing that our instructor was very strict about was if somebody comes to you with a history of cancer. Don't touch them. Hmm. You can hurt them. Don't touch them unless you want to further your education. And interestingly, my initial thought was that is more responsibility than I want. I don't think that is something I'm going to do. Um, and I did not know what I would continue to study. Every two years, you need continuing education. I didn't really know what my interests would be for that. And then I finished massage school. I started my own practice, and a dear friend of mine was diagnosed with cancer. And I felt totally helpless. Hmm. Like I knew I couldn't do anything and I really wanted to. And her husband was texting me from the oncologist's office saying, I need to get her on your table. I need, I need you to start seeing her regularly. And I had to say, I can't. So my very smart husband said, no, you're going to learn how to do that. 
And I mean, there's nowhere near here that I that I could take the classes to do it. So I went online and looked and there was um, a place, I think it was in Portland I could have gone and then there was a place in Orange County, California and their class was soonest. I signed up and I went out there and I was trained. Mm -hmm. Then after I came back, I was trying to find clients to do it and really actually struggled and had a hard time getting people to know what it was I was doing. And then um, out of the blue, Ryan Parnell called me and said, I was told I need to know you. Hmm. And so I was one of the first employees there. And that's, it's odd that that seems so specialized that you couldn't find training except on the West Coast. Like, is, is it yeah. that unique of a um, it is, focus? It's very, it, is, it is a specific focus, and it's not like you can just watch videos, um, at least for, there's, there's no certification process that makes it legal that you can't do it mm-hmm. if you're not, specially trained. People can watch videos and say they're specially trained. That's not how I run my my massage practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to actually work on my instructors and have them approve what I'm doing. And I really felt it was important to take this course. Well, it's literally a hands-on yes, career. So it, it is. It, it makes it is. sense. And the course was, I'm trying to remember, this is so long ago now. Um, it was maybe five days a week. I was gone for a while. And um, it was a lot of intensive training of learning how to work with different clients. I, I literally have to take each client and their situation, not only the type of cancer, but the type of treatment mm-hmm. and every little aspect that's happened to them to formulate how to work on them. So, um, so yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Now it's second nature because I've been doing it for so many years, but um, but it's a lot to learn. So tell me, uh, people may be familiar with, um, you know, getting a massage, but tell me like what's specifically helpful about it in relation to cancer patients? Like what, what is the service you're providing for them beyond it feels good? And sometimes it feels good is enough, you know, but like, is, is there some other therapeutic thing that's happening there? Um, I think that it, yes, it feels good, but also like we talked about with stress, stress hormones and Mm -hmm. endorphins, it can help ease stress, it can help ease nausea, it can make it easier to sleep, it will help with insomnia, Um, it can put the body into rest and digest, it it's just, it's so good for the body. Um, but if somebody is a cancer survivor, you know, whether they're just diagnosed for the rest of their life, they really need to be careful that they don't just go to anybody. Deep tissue massage is pretty much always off the table. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Like, is, mm-hmm. is there something about a traditional massage that, that maybe can be dangerous? I mean, what are the things yes. that I don't understand? Yes. About I mean, that? you have to understand the way the lymph system works. And so you have to, for me, let's just say that I have a client who who just had a double mastectomy and they removed her lymph nodes on her left side. I will be working very differently on her than my client who had prostate cancer 10 years ago and just had radiation. Okay. Very, very differently because of the way the lymph system works. Got it. So I just always have to keep keep track of what kind of surgery, what kind of treatment, where they are in that. Is there is there something about the cancer side of your massage practice that has maybe more fulfillment or gives you a little bit different sort of satisfaction that just a standard massage, or is it like all the same to you at this point? It's well, I think it's all different. It's all different, but I want it all. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just, um, it's really special, you know, in addition to my seeing clients at the center, they also now COVID aside, I have not been able to get in the hospital. Right. But they also, they did send me back to Orange County to get trained to work in the chemo room. So I'm also in fusion massage training. Okay. So, and that's when you actually work on people while they're getting chemotherapy. So it's like yet another little piece that just kind of connects together and another time that I get to help people when they really feel crappy. Are there, are there any studies that show that massage alongside chemo has some sort of, um, you know, positive results or or can actually aid in in that process? I think it would be the same as with every other benefit of massage in general in that, you know, I've gone into the chemo room and had people who were extremely anxious, feeling really terrible. And then I work on them and not really to pat myself on the back, but then they're asleep when I'm Yeah, done. I mean, th- yeah. 
getting hooked up to those machines it's by itself is, is stressful. And you put yes. the cancer on top of that and the reason they're there, I can, I mean, I can totally exactly. understand Exactly, yeah, and it's loud and it's bright and all the beeping and people calling the nurses over and someone's talking on the phone. And in one of the chemo rooms here, they have a TV going. So, yeah, I mean, to give them a little bubble mm-hmm. of escaping that is... It's really special. It's really special to me, and I believe it's really special to my clients, too. Okay, so I, I know that, that COVID had a lot of impact on uh, the m- massage world. I mean, especially since you're you're in a room together. It's a very intimate mm-hmm. thing. Uh, nobody wants to get a massage with a mask on their face, you know, right. all that stuff. And right. so I know that's been really a challenging. Um, tell me a little bit about the past year and some of the ways that you found to not only sustain that practice, but also expand what you do. Okay. Well, I didn't sustain that practice. I shut it down. (laughs) And when I first shut it down, um, I thought, okay, I told my clients, I'm going to give it two weeks and see what happens. Amarillo was still pretty much up and running at that point, but... This was back in March, I guess. Yeah, it was was like in March 17th-ish for me. In fact, the last client I saw, my daughter and I left town, and now look in hindsight, I can't believe we did that. We left town... Um, I saw my last client on March 11th at the Survivorship Center, and then we left the 12th. And I got back, you know, a few days after that, we took a long weekend in Austin. From the time we got there, things seemed really normal to the time we left. It started getting really creepy. There was Mm -hmm. um, the streets seemed real empty. There were lines at the gas stations. And I was just like, okay, we need to get home. And um, I have family in Houston. They all thought I was crazy to have gone from Amarillo to a bigger city when this was going on. But like in Amarillo, it just really didn't like, there was no toilet paper and there was no right. hand sanitizer, but everyone I talked to was kind of like, yeah, it's not, yeah. you know, we're it's, making it felt like a New York city thing at that. Yes. Point. And I'd actually been in New York city the February before. Wow, so it was yeah. like the month earlier I was in New York and we felt like we had just escaped, you know, but anyway, so I came home and I decided I would close for a couple of weeks and sort of reevaluate. But it was that night I said to my husband, if I close my practice, I don't know when I'm going to be able to reopen it again. And he said, oh, maybe a month, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, But the longer it went on, the long, more I realized I really don't know. Um, I had some clients that were very angry with me. I had a client who um, later on when I finally decided I was not going to go back to my office, I, I didn't sign another lease, she actually had admitted when I saw her on March 10th that she was supposed to be in quarantine. And oh, wow. she actually did get COVID. So somehow wow. I did not get it. But at that point, too, I realized, okay, yeah, this was definitely the right choice for me to make for my clients and for me. And especially because I see immunocompromised clients even in my private practice, right, not just right. at survivorship. And so I just... You know, it's like with anything for me, I always want to get to do the right thing to keep people safe. And that's just my my highest priority. Was that always your choice or was was there ever any statewide, you know, designation? If if you're a licensed massage therapist, you've got to shut down. I mean, did there was a little time in there. And then, yeah. And then as soon as they started saying that things were going to be reopening, my clients were texting me and I said, it may be legal but it's not ethical right? and I'm not comfortable doing it and I will never do anything that will risk your health. And again, I think people think I'm silly. And But you know, if I'm going to be silly by protecting people, okay, I'll do that. Well, and like you said, dealing with cancer patients or people undergoing chemo, I mean, that right. you just, that's, that's why a lot of people have been so careful is because somebody in their lives, you know, have that sort of compromised immune system or, exactly. or something like that. Exactly. So, so I just kind of laid low, you know, I, for a while was calling my clients and, you know, I mean, I have a very nice relationship with a lot of them who have seen me for many, many years. And so I just kind of stayed in touch with them. Um, and then I took a class to become a death doula. Right. And I, I definitely <laughs> want to talk to you about that. Um, so having heard you talk, like I can see a through line. I can see a line through mm-hmm. you're doing the massage therapy. It makes you feel good. It makes your patients feel good. And you move it into cancer survivorship and you're you're dealing with people, a lot of whom are facing, you know, end of life possibility, or at least are much more attuned to that because they're going through cancer treatment. Um, and so arriving at the death doula side of it, tell me like how you got to that process of thinking, okay, I can't do massages right now. This is what I'm going to do. Well, it didn't start there. It had started 
prior to that. Um, in my, I, ha- I had several offices. I had my private practice office, and I have my office at Survivorship. I have really cozy little space. And there's something about that space, and I don't know, maybe there's something about massage or something just about me, that there are a few different topics that my clients like to ask me about. And um, a lot of these conversations are kind of Mm hush-hush, and one of them is about dying. Hmm. And it's a conversation that I don't shy away from, and I've I've never really shied away from that kind of conversation. Um, I don't think that pretending that we're not going to die makes it easier for anyone. It doesn't make it easier for the person who's dying, and it doesn't make it easier for their families or, you know, for anybody. It's something that it's going to happen to all of us. So... um, I would this conversation would come up, yeah, and and so I would just you know let them talk, and I would listen to them, and and for me just sort of hold space and and support what they wanted, and remind them that in this situation they're really the they're in charge, regardless of how you think. So often it's like your doctor gives you the the list of things of what you're going to be doing, and you follow through the list, but sometimes things don't go as you're planned yeah. on as you're planning on having them go, so. Um, you know, when you're throwing that curveball, then what? And sometimes I think patients need that reminder that what is it that you want? What is it that, you know, what is your ultimate goal? And so um, I did have a client, and I'd have, like I said, lots of clients who had talked about this, but she really planted a big seed in me because she told me that, she knew cancer was going to take her life. She didn't know when. She was planning on sticking through treatment, even though she was absolutely miserable. And she wanted to talk to her family about end-of-life plans, and they would not even hmm. discuss it with her. And she went by herself to the funeral home, prepaid for oh, everything, went online and bought herself an urn. And I thought, this is not right. There has to be something that I can do to help people. And at that point, though, my massage practice was so busy that I just didn't have time to to pursue anything beyond that. But when my continuing education came up, I found an end-of-life massage class that actually was in Dallas. And so I went and took that. And I at that point, I'd also started following a Lua Arthur um, she owns an organization, or she had, runs an organization called Going with Grace. Okay, and I often repost her videos. You may you may have seen some of them, um, but she's a death doula, and she's just amazing. She's a powerhouse, and I love her videos, and I love her attitude, and um, I really wanted to study under her. But again, I just didn't really have the time to take away from my massage practice. Um, so I took that end of life massage course, and I loved it. But again, I came back and was like, okay, hey, now what? I really I don't have time to find these clients. Right. Then COVID hit. Yeah. And all of a sudden you had time to do <laughs> exactly, the stuff exactly. You've been so out. I was there over the summer and then COVID hit in March. And so when I closed my practice, I talked to my husband again. I said, I think I want to do this. I think this is time. This is something like I have to do something. I can't just sit and not do anything. And I don't know if and when I can get back to massage. And um and as always, he encouraged me to do it. And I, so I took the course with Elua Arthur, and it was amazing. It was just, I mean, I learned so much, and I also learned that I knew a lot and that a lot of what I can do is just to be there for people, to support them, to have the experience that they want. So let's – I feel like at this point we should probably give some broad definitions because – uh, I imagine there are a lot of listeners who know about a doula in the context of birth. Yes. Have maybe never heard the phrase death doula. Um, it makes sense when you think about those things, but like, tell, tell us what that job is. What are you doing? What, what's the breadth of it? Okay. Well, it varies from death doula to death doula. So where one person may be really loving all the pre-planning stuff or the wrapping it up after people die, or one death doula may really love doing home funerals and preparing the body and celebrations of life. Um, to me, I really focus more on the comfort and practical aspects of it. Um, I help, I can help people pre-plan with their advanced directives. I can help them, um, write out a list of things that are important to them as they get closer 
to the end of their life. The truth is the best time to do that is now Mm -hmm. when you're not sick. Um, When you're not really thinking about dying, that's the best time to get all that stuff in order and to start talking to your family, letting them know what's important to you. And then as my clients, you know, when they get sick and when they see that the end is on the horizon, um, that's really where I can go into their homes and I can help them do what they need me to do. Um, whether it's just listen, listen to them, talk about how they're feeling. Mm-hmm. I'm not a counselor, I'm not a therapist, but I can absolutely listen and do the same sort of support and reflecting back to them what I'm hearing them say, encouraging them to be honest with their doctors. It's a really, really hard thing for a lot of people hmm. to do. I can help them go through their things, decide who gets what, get rid of stuff they don't want. That's called Swedish death cleaning. And I'm really trying to think of a better name for that because a lot of people don't like that There's name. There's probably a Swedish word that makes a lot more sense. There it's is a, a Swedish word, but I'm not even going to attempt translation. that. Yeah, yeah. It, what sounds so fascinating to me about it is that it's like, like there's an administrative side where you're helping them deal with stuff and wrap things up and work with their family and work with... Uh, I assume, you know, mortician services and get everything planned with all that. And then there's like the sitting and being a friend and and it's a therapeutic side. And not everybody can do both of those things. I mean, there's an emotional component. There's an organizational component. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm pretty good at both. I think, um, and again, not every death doula wants to do the organizational stuff. You just kind of make it your own practice, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. So for me, yes, I want to be there and help you get things organized and set and ready. I'm a planner by nature. So I, that, that's my jam. Like I will come in there and help you get everything. And then I will, I will be your advocate and make sure that things go the way you want. Um, of course, just like with birth, death doesn't always happen when or how we're expecting it to happen, but you definitely can have your wishes. And if one of your wishes is no matter what, I don't want to be in the hospital, I can do my best to try to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, I can go and sit vigil when somebody's actively dying. Hmm. I can help the family through that. I can walk your dog. I can, you know. So for me, I love that emotional aspect and that comfort and companion aspect. But the um, those practical to-do list and planning parts are really are good for me too. There, there will be a subset of people who hear about this job uh, and, and maybe you're just learning about it as a career, who think, well, isn't that what the funeral home does? Uh, isn't that something that morticians take care of, a lot of that stuff? Not understanding the full breadth of it, you right. know? How, how do you talk to people like that who kind of have that, you know, they, they, they put the process of dying or grieving in a box, and they say, it's this thing, and I'll deal with that, you know, with whatever mortuary right. when it comes. How do you kind of talk them through, this is this is something that you should consider? Right. Well, because what I'm doing is, my goal is to work with people when they're alive. Once they're dead, yeah, the mortician, sure, can, the mortician can have them. And the truth is, I don't really think that there's a big market here for home funerals, so that's really not my focus. If somebody really wanted it, I'll talk to them about it. We can we can plan for that. But for me, um, the funeral homes and the mortuary services, that's their that's really their role. My role is all, you know, prior to that. So if someone gets a diagnosis, if they're told that they have six months to a year, call me. Like that is like that is just the sweet spot because my job is like people sometimes compare it to hospice. Well, hospice is medical, right? But even with hospice, it's a similar situation where people will often get on hospice two weeks before they die, where they could have had those hospice services in their home and comfort care for many months, up to six months before they died. But because people are hesitant to go ahead and kind of say, okay, this is the end, then they aren't able to receive those services that they could have had that could have been really beneficial. But hospice is medical. Everything I do is holistic. I don't. I can't administer medication. I can't do any of that. It also occurs to me that this is a culture that prizes independence and sort of that pioneer mentality. And a lot of times, and we've seen this with with COVID and our response to it, a lot of times that manifests as, um, I don't need your help. I'm going to figure out a way to do this. I'm just going to grit my teeth and power through, which obviously doesn't work at the end of life. And, And I wonder if you've being here in Amarillo, Texas, you know, in, in Canyon and the Panhandle, 
if you've had to overcome any of that sort of hesitancy to say, no, this is what you need and I can help you find this place? Well, I think for me, I, I never tell someone what they need. I think that okay. they intuitively know what they need. I can, I, I'm here to provide and help <laughs> meet right. those needs that I understand. Exactly, exactly. I'm more the type of person who would say, okay, what is it you want? Mm-hmm. You know, I have a client right now. And when he called me, he said, I was told I have about a year. And I said, okay, well, how can I help you? What are you looking for? Well, he has a therapist. He doesn't, Mm -hmm. but he said, I just need more emotional support. And I really want somebody that my wife can talk to. And I really just want somebody to come and check on me. I don't have any family here besides my wife. I really just want a connection. And I want somebody who will listen to me talk about how I feel about the end of my life. Hmm. And he said, my doctor won't talk to me about it. My doctor won't listen. Um, He says, I just need to continue my treatments, even though they're not working and they're making me sick. And I really just need that emotional support. And then, you know, I did say, well, I'm also a massage therapist. And he was like, oh, yeah, I want that. I need that. too." (laughs) And he said, and really, if you could give my wife a massage, I would really love that. And so, um, Anyway, he's really special. He's still alive. I don't know how much longer he will be alive. I'm seeing him tomorrow. How do you deal with that emotionally as someone providing professional services? You know, your clients contract your services because they are going to die. And so it's a very limited window. And I would assume that that you deal with a lot of those same, you know, types of grief Maybe you don't know them as long, but when somebody dies, the people close to them grieve. And you can't help but become close to people who you are providing that emotional support for. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, I think I've learned over time that if I get a client and they're healthy and do not seem to be at the end of their life and they end up dying, it affects me differently than if I get a client and I know that they're at the end of their life and I know that this is our time together to help them through that. It's a different experience and it does affect me differently. Hmm. Um, I don't feel like I protect myself emotionally or anything. I think it's just more of an acceptance of, yes, this is, this is very temporary. I mean, I, I believe everything's temporary. I'm temporary, you know, everything's temporary. So, um, so I know that with everybody, but when you know, somebody has like, you know, their expiration date is coming close. It's, I guess it's a different kind of feeling. Not that I don't get sad. When I was talking to my client's wife yesterday on the phone, we were both crying on the phone. It's, the situation's not good, you know. Um, but I think, you know, feeling sad when somebody dies is normal. And I think that people try to be really stoic about it. And, um, oh, you know, I'm be strong. And, um, I mean, there's a time for strength. And I think that being sad about somebody dying doesn't mean you're not strong. Right. But at the same time, like, there are people who will be sad about someone dying. But, like, there are not people who would feel equipped to make that their career to walk yeah. alongside people who are dying. And yeah. so you are you are stepping into something that for other people is very hard to just to feel emotionally equipped to do and being equipped that way is part of your job. So I wonder what it is like maybe about your personality or about how you've dealt with grief or anything like that yeah. that you feel okay, this is the thing and I'm I'm going to do it. I don't know. I think that I mean as you know, it's a death phobic society. Uh, absolutely. People do not want to talk about it um, unless they do. And then it's like they really, they just really want, that's that's what they really are interested in talking about. I think for me, I, I used to say I was doing a dance with it for years. It was literally as soon as I started at survivorship, realized, okay, I think I'm on this other path now mm-hmm. too. And again, it was my clients who were bringing this up. It was, it was their desire to talk about it, you know? And so I just sort of opened it up for them and realized, I just almost felt like this path was chosen for me and I resisted as well. I mean, I'm very sensitive and I'm very tenderhearted. And like I said, I mean, i I cried for a month with COVID at least, you know, I missed my clients terribly. And so 
to purposely put myself in this situation, I think it's because maybe I turned the way I thought about it. Yes, dying, it's sad when somebody dies, but if I can be there to help them and to make it a better experience for them and for their families, then yeah, then I wanted to do that. You know, it's almost like with my angiography job. It's like, if this is the worst part of their day, exactly. I'm going to do whatever I can to make it not so horrible. So I, I, I want to close this part um, by returning to, you know, the the topic of Amarillo and this area um, with you having, you know, moved here 15 years ago, started over with a new marriage, new series of careers. You found yourself here. Like, does does this area feel like home to you now? Or does another part of the country still feel like home? Gosh, that's yes. It feels like home, but I still, um, I still feel like an outsider. A okay, lot. you don't quite feel like you belong. No, but I'm kind of a weirdo. So I think I like I said, I found my people. Right. Um, there are plenty of weirdos in this there area. Are, I know, but it took so long for me to really find them. But um, but definitely, I think. It feels like home. I've been here really a long time. I will always consider Chicago home. I will not move back to Chicago. And my goal is one day to live in northern Arizona. I mean, my husband and I go there every every chance every chance we get. So um, hoping one day we'll be able to retire and that's where you'll find us. Is there a, a characteristic of this part of the country that you think has has helped you? to kind of feel at home here has helped you to, to sort of find yourself in this career? Um, I think maybe you talked about the independent spirit mm -hmm. and people are sort of like this can do attitude and, you know, just, I think people who are sort of like, they just kind of dust themselves off and let's just keep going. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think maybe maybe that's that's it kind of rubs like, off on you, I, I guess. If yeah, you yeah. Live here long you know, enough. you see other people doing things and figuring their figuring things out and just doing it, and so yeah, it's like oh yeah, I can do that too. Hey, Amarillo is also sponsored this week by Wick Realty. Katie Wick and her agents helped me buy and sell a home, well, twice now, and both experiences were fantastic. In fact, we ended up in the house that has hosted the vast majority of these podcast conversations. And what I really love is that WIC is invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. You can see their signs in neighborhoods all over the city. So if you're buying, selling, building, if you're looking for investment property, if you are a potential first-time homeowner, talk to Katie WIC or one of her outstanding agents. That's WICRealty.com, W-I-E-C-K. Okay, we're back with Melanie Eggleston. Melanie, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes at least eight hands-on, touchable displays in its exhibits, which I mentioned just because I know that hands-on and touchable is a big part of your job. Uh, you can learn more about that at panhandleplains.org. Um, so this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions, a lot of the same questions I ask most of my guests, and your job is to answer those in as much detail as you want. The The first one, and, and we've covered a little bit of this territory, but what's one thing 2020 re revealed to you about local people? Um, I think, gosh, it wasn't all sunshine and roses. It, it was really, really hard. Um, and I think I grieved a lot. But um, two things that really were impactful to me was – um, the Panhandle Mutual Aid Board, seeing mm -hmm. with, that Lytton started, yes. showed me how helpful people really can be and how much people are really looking for ways to give back. And another one, it was just barely at the end of 2020, and they're still doing it, is I am blown away by the nurses who are giving out the shots at the Civic Center. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm in awe. I'm absolutely in awe of them. I'm I'm amazed. I've had journalists contact me and say, we're seeing these stories about Amarillo and shot distribution and vaccination. How are you guys doing that? Like, what's happening? And, I mean, I, I'm removed from it, and I'm just like, we have a really competent public health board. Apparently I mean, so. they know what to do. Yeah, I, yeah, apparently so. Yeah, I have some underlying health conditions, so I was able to get my shot because I qualified. But the first time I was there, it was about three and a half hours, but it just... 
it, it was totally fine to wait that long. Mm-hmm. It was the I was I was just amazed. I really was amazed. So yeah, I'm hoping that those nurses will let me come down there with my massage chair and uh, and work on them or something. They deserve it. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't think anybody says no to free yeah. massage. <laughs> what does this area have too much of? I sh- I don't want to be negative, but okay. So I live out in the country, mm-hmm. and it feels like they are building a new house on every square inch between Amarillo and where I live, and. Um, it's made traffic terrible. Hmm. So, so yeah, we have too much new construction, in my opinion. Some people will say that's a good thing. I know. Because it, it represents does. growth. But there's, there's also an element of the fact that cities like Amarillo grow outward, and we just keep expanding and expanding and eating up more of the ranch land, as opposed to places like Chicago, maybe, that grow upward in mm-hmm. a lot of cases. Uh, and there's something to be said for reaching that place where your urban density, you know, goes up instead of out. It, you have less of that sprawl. Right, right. I think because here, the way houses are, I don't think they could even really build up. And truly in Chicago, there is urban sprawl. Well, I mean, true. It stretches all the way into, into Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Exactly, exactly. I used to, my, my last house was on the Wisconsin border, just a little bit into Illinois. And it still was a, very much a Chicago suburb. Hmm. But um, but yeah, it's just, you know, I feel like we have, have the traffic of living in the city now, but not the infrastructure for it. And we don't have the internet like you guys do out here. Really? So I'm sharing bandwidth with all these people oh, now. Wow. It's terrible. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that would so be frustrating. I, yeah. I was spoiled living out in the country where it felt really, it doesn't feel like the country anymore. Okay. What does this area not have enough of? We have lots of ethnic food here, but not all the ethnic food that I want. Okay. So um, I would like some dim sum. I would like some Korean food. I would like some Mediterranean food. And we have none of that. Totally valid. Yes. We have Thai restaurants. You could eat one on every corner if you uh-huh. wanted to. Um, but yeah, no dim sum. No. no. Maybe a little. There's, there's one place that serves ramen, you know, and, and that's oh, about and it's it. Oh, it's so like, good yeah. there. But yeah. yeah. But but no, I want I want Korean food. I mean, yeah. it's so good and so different than any other Asian food. Okay. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? Um, I tell them it's really weird here. And I tell them that we have the most beautiful sky I've ever seen. And it's, we really do. Is that something you had to get used to growing up in a, a place like Chicago and yeah. then coming here where it's just wide open expanse? Did yes. that feel weird? Yes. I loved it though. But I, I thought it was amazing. But yeah, in Chicago, there's also people who have never been there don't realize there's lots of trees there too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a city, but there's trees everywhere and there's parks filled with giant trees. So where there aren't big buildings, there's big trees. So it felt very open and kind of freeing being here. I really loved it. I mean, and I I've, loved- I've talked to people from, you know, the East Coast uh, who grew up around lots of trees and and having this big horizon almost felt oppressive to them. Like like there was a sense of it that just didn't feel right. So it's good that you had a good experience coming into something different. Yeah, no, it was. it's just so beautiful. I mean, the sky here is so beautiful. Okay, we talked about restaurants, but what's your favorite local restaurant? Oh, hands down, Bangkok, Tokyo. Okay. I love those people. I love the food there. It is some, probably the best Thai food I've ever had, mm-hmm. and I've had Thai food all around the world, so... It's okay, really good. that's good to know. Yeah. Do you have a, a, a dish that's your go-to? Or oh, do you... green curry chicken. Okay. Oh, I just love it. I just recently called there, and she said, oh, do you want your usual order? I mean, like, they really, yeah, they know us. But we're not eating out anywhere yet. We're still just doing carry-out. Okay. What's uh, your favorite local coffee shop? Uh, so this was a little harder of a decision, but I'm going to go with 806. Okay. I love my weird people. And I, I the people who own that are really wonderful. It's, it's the epicenter of, of weird people in yes, Amarillo, I think. Yes, no, I love it. In all the it. best ways. I love it. And I hadn't been there in almost a year. Yeah. And I was going to visit a friend and I swung by to pick up coffee to bring to her. And I saw Courtney, one of the owners, and that poor lady, I, it was like, she was my therapist for five minutes. I mean, she said, how are you doing? which was maybe the wrong thing for her to, to say. And you both just burst into tears well, No, together. no, no. I was just like, I just unloaded, like, you know. And so um, I didn't cry, actually, but she stood and listened. And it, it, I, I left there with my coffees and just felt like, oh, okay, you know. But, yeah, they're my favorite. I just, I really love it there. Okay, when was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? I was trying to remember. Um, it's been at least five years, probably more. My sister lives in Houston. Okay. And she was in town with her kids, and we went there. I'm sure it was windy. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was was it on your radar when you moved here? Like kind of the touristy side of Amarillo? I think I I had no, I knew what it was. I'd heard of it. You know, I went to art school and so, you know, yeah. it's iconic. Sure. But I didn't realize it was here. And so when Eric told me it was here, I remember being really excited and okay. I wanted to go see it. And okay. Yeah. And what's your favorite local street? Um, okay, so I hope this counts. It's not really a street. It's it's a walk that we like to take. Okay. We call it's called the Sansi Hills, so it's kind of a street. I don't know if you've ever been there. Um, describe it and we'll see. Okay. So, well, it goes in front of Wildcat Bluff. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, so we like to start at that hotel and then we walk all the way. I think that's Tesco. So it's, it's four miles each way and it's, right. it is hilly. And, um, we like to do that when we're training to go hiking. Paved walking path there. Yes. Many a, uh, local runner or bicyclist yes. relies on those hills as a good way to train. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's but great. It, it's a a, a really great walk. I mean, yeah. windy days, it can be kind of bad, but man, if you can get out there when it's nice, you can see in every direction. It's yeah. super cool. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. We like to do that and we'll be getting back out there once the weather starts cooperating. Okay. That concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guest to endorse something. And so Melanie, what's one thing that you would want uh, listeners to know about or to experience? We've already brought it up a lot, but 24 Hours in the Canyon Cancer Survivorship Center has my heart. I mean, what amazing work we do there. It's Everything we do is free, and we help lots of people, and it's just a wonderful organization. Ryan Parnell is a past guest on this podcast. I know. I think I told you to, to interview him. You probably did. <laughs> I, I tend to listen when you tell me to interview people. Um, okay, Melanie Eggleston, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. This was so fun. Thank you. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Melanie for the interview. Um, she is currently working on a website, but uh, you'll be able to find out more about her practice at MelanieEggleston.com. And also, of course, thanks to Angelina Marie for editing the show. Thanks to my friends at Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for sponsoring Eight Straight every week, and to Terra Accounting and Wick Realty for sponsoring the show. This podcast exists every week because of listeners like you, so thank you for listening. And because of the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. My executive producers through Patreon include Barbara and Jim Witten, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Jess Heredia, and Ryan Pennington. This has been episode 192. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.